DW, Living Planet. Hi, welcome to Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shields. As Russia's war wages on in Ukraine, today we hear from Russian climate activists and environmental organisations trying their best to protect the country's environment while in exile. They see environmental organisations as a threat to the status quo, to their authority, and that's why they consider environmental activities as political activities. And we head to a very remote, very northern part of the Earth, Svalbard home to staggering natural beauty and rapid Arctic melting. We have had the people change their feelings from enjoying being here to having anxiety and fear. A place from which climate scientists are trying to inspire monumental global change. We can change it if we work together. Everyone can contribute, but we also have to do things together that the single individual is unable to do. So system changes, energy systems, but we can do it and we must do it. All that coming up. Have you ever dreamt of visiting an Arctic wonderland? In this first story, we're taking you to a place known for its glaciers, polar bears and northern light shows, where the sun doesn't rise for three months of the year and doesn't set for four others. Almost 2,000 kilometres, or 1,000 miles, north of Oslo lies the Svalbard archipelago. The name means cold coast, which is pretty accurate given the sub-zero temperatures there. Svalbard is slightly larger than the country of Croatia, and it makes up part of Norway. The archipelago was once known for its coal mining, and most of its settlements, like the capital, Longyearbyen, were founded by miners. Norway's only coal-fired power plant is based there, which the government plans to close later on this year. About two-thirds of Svalbard is protected land. There are seven national parks, 29 protected areas, 15 bird sanctuaries and six nature reserves. But that's not doing much against the impacts of planet heating carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels. Global warming is melting ice there, increasing sea levels and disrupting the habitats of the region's unique animal and plant life, as well as impacting the people who live in the region. Michel Marek travelled to Svalbard to bring us this story, presented by Ben Ressler. Longyearbyen. Surrounded by snow-capped mountains and fronted by the icy waters of the East Fjord, it's one of the northernmost towns on the planet. There are no trees here, just rock, snow and ice. And a small human settlement made up of colourful wooden houses that stand out against the earthy backdrop. In summer, the sky here is crystal clear and a brilliant blue. In winter, the sun sits below the horizon... And the town, which is the capital of the Svalbard archipelago, is cloaked in complete darkness, aside from the moonlight. From above the small international airfield, where lignite and hard coal used to be mined, there is a fabulous view of the surrounding area. Some distance away, snow-covered glaciers spread out. 
They make up 60% of the total area of the archipelago, located 1,300 kilometers, some 800 miles south of the North Pole. About five kilometers away from the capital, a giant grey building juts out of the snow-covered mountain behind it. Metal letters fixed to the side spell out what lies beneath. The Svalbard Global Seed Vault. Seed samples from 231 countries around the world are stored here, hidden deep inside the mountain. An employee from the seed bank opens a steel double door at the entrance. So welcome. This is the entrance hall of the vault. Not much going on here. We do have to put on helmets for... For protocol, so grab a helmet and... Inside, suddenly on. the ventilators of a large-scale so cooling system come to life, humming loudly. The vault exists to preserve the planet's seed diversity. That's according to Hannes Dempewolf, a biologist for an NGO called the Global Crop Diversity Trust in Bonn, Germany. The NGO operates the unique seed bank. Scientists call the seed bank the genetic resource of crop diversity, he says. It's valuable material that has been bred and developed by farmers over thousands of years. Storing it in this vault is basically part of a big global project to preserve all these different kinds of seeds and ensure that they are available for future generations. Yes. The Norwegian government began building the storage site in 2006 and it started operating in 2008. Since then, numerous seeds have been preserved here. Amaranth from Ecuador, wild beans from Costa Rica, tomatoes from Germany, chickpeas from Nigeria, corn from the US and rice from India. Currently, there are over 1.2 million seed specimens from more than 5,000 species here, with room for millions more. There are a few reasons why the seed bank was set up in Svalbard. The archipelago is a demilitarized zone and is in the northernmost inhabited part of the earth that can be reached by plane. Norway, as a rule, doesn't get involved in wars and does not possess any nuclear weapons. The country has a good reputation around the world. And Hannes Dempewolf says there is another good reason for choosing the location. Svalbard is a very cold area and is relatively isolated, he says. There's a great deal of permafrost here in the Arctic, which provides optimal conditions for preserving seeds. It's around minus 5 degrees Celsius or 22 degrees Fahrenheit, which is far better for preservation than what they could offer in Bonn, he adds. But in 2017, the effects of burning fossil fuels reached the global seed vault. Unexpectedly high temperatures in fall and winter meant the permafrost began to melt, and meltwater reached the entrance of the vault. Long before 2017, however, the effects of rising global temperatures were already changing the climate in Svalbard, confirms Kim Holman, He's the Swedish director of the Norwegian Polar Institute, Norway's central governmental institution for scientific research, mapping and environmental monitoring in the Arctic and the Antarctic. I've seen a lot of change. Obviously, the glacier we're standing on has diminished quite dramatically, 10 meters in thickness at least. But permafrost thawing 
I see changes in animal and plant life. Snow melts earlier in the spring, and most strongly felt is warming of the winter. And the increased precipitation that we've seen has led to more avalanches, and we tragically had uh, two fatalities in 2015 from an unexpected avalanche. Wearing glasses and a long beard, Holman looks a little sullen. This is far from the first time the Professor for Environment and Climate Studies at the University of Tromso has spelled out the facts to a politician or a journalist. The fjord at Longyearbyen simply does not freeze over anymore. The glaciers on Svalbard are retreating, and it is perfectly possible that in this century the entire Arctic will be free from ice in summer. The jet stream that governs the pathways of our weather systems is shifting because the Arctic is warming faster than further south. And that leads to longer periods of dry, longer periods of wet. So extreme weather will be influenced. Scientists like Holman have discovered that the Arctic is in fact warming around twice as fast as the global average, a phenomenon known as Arctic amplification. Some other research pits this amplification at four times the global average. The consequences are stark. The 350 glaciers on Svalbard are melting. Less year-round ice means less reflected heat, resulting in more intense global heat waves. It also contributes to rising global sea levels, and the destabilization of weather systems, such as the polar jet stream. Climate change is very high on my agenda. I have devoted my entire life to research and work with climate change. I have seen many changes in the 30 years that I have been active here. The fjord behind me used to freeze with more than a meter of ice every winter. It is now more than 10 years since we last had ice in the winter here. Standing in Adventalen, a valley that connects to the East Fjord in front of the city of Longyearbyen, you can see small icebergs bobbing up and down in the water. The effects of climate change on this ecosystem have been studied in meticulous detail by scientists like Kim Holman. Some animals, such as the Arctic fox, will be able to adapt to rising temperatures, Holman explains. But not all. He is not confident the narwhal has much chance of survival. There's also been a great deal more fish and bird species appearing here, which are not usually seen this far north. For example, mackerels from warmer waters have appeared off the coast of Svalbard, impacting local species' ability to survive. Unfortunately, we are losing habitat, we are losing nature because of high pressures, various kinds, maybe monetary. By that, Holman means that the Arctic and Svalbard with it, once a frozen and inaccessible area, is now at the center of global economic interests. Climate change means that the Arctic ice is melting and certain resources usually buried beneath the ice are now more easily accessible. As the Arctic ice sheet disappears, a global race is starting to take shape, wherein countries such as the US, Canada, Russia and China want to take control of the region's desirable natural resources, such as gas and oil. The Arctic is still a geopolitical and ecological challenge where the balance between economic interests and environmental protection must be carefully weighed, Holman says. 
I believe that there has been a lot of change when I look back at the types of debates we had 30 years ago and the debates today, the level of understanding and insight has changed in society and amongst decision makers and politicians. It is a question of patience, yes, it is a process, it is not something that we should expect that overnight everything changes. Back in Longyearbyen, streets have come back to life after the lull of the COVID-19 pandemic. The town has a shopping street, a school, a hospital, kindergartens, hotels and restaurants, a post office, a police station, the Norwegian Polar Institute, and a helicopter rescue station. The road network is around 46 kilometers in total, but there is no road leading anywhere else. There are far more snowmobiles than cars in this place. The islands of the archipelago are unpopulated, apart from the settlements of Longyearbyen, Nyalesund, and the Russian mining town of Barentsburg. Almost all adults here are employed. There are no pensioners, no refugees or people on benefits. Criminality is unheard of here, but there is a high level of alcohol consumption. The region is a demilitarized zone thanks to the Svalbard Treaty of 1925. Over 50 nationalities are represented in the tiny town with a population of just 2,400 people. They work in a variety of industries, waiting tables in restaurants, staffing hotel reception desks, or leading guided tours of glaciers. Most are from Norway's mainland, but there are also many people from Sweden and Thailand, as well as Denmark, Russia, Germany, the Philippines, the UK and Chile. It's a dynamic microcosm of the world. Each year, around a quarter of the population moves away, but many more quickly move in to replace them, especially in the booming tourist sector. There are very few genuine locals. In fact, there is a saying that you are not born in Longyearbyen, you emigrate there. No indications of an indigenous population have ever been found on the archipelago. Deputy Governor of Svalbard, Jens Olaf Seter, sees tourism as a key for the island's survival. Tourism is important for the society here in Dongabin because it gives work for people, it creates incomes for the citizens. And if the coal mining activity is going down, there has to be other activities. And that's, I think, the tourism is important. Yes, there it is. There it is. Yes, enjoy it. Enjoy this wonderful adventure. We are going to have a wonderful time with a lot of things to see. The Norwegian government began promoting tourism in the early 1990s. Until then, visitors could only arrive by invitation. Now, they are more and more, especially in winter when the aurora borealis is visible. Also known as the Northern Lights, this brilliant turquoise green light dances across the Arctic nighttime sky. Tourists are also lured by the prospect of seeing a polar bear in the flesh. Around 3,000 live on the islands. 20 years ago, there were around 20,000 overnight stays a year. By 2019, there were more than 162,000. Every day, scheduled planes from Tromsø or Oslo land here. Cruise ships bring tourist groups. More and more cruise ships are heading out to the Arctic waters of Svalbard. The keys of Longyearbyen are still far too small for the big ships, and the small town only has limited resources. It cannot handle too many guests. 
An uptick in tourists has caused problems for the area, like the enormous amount of garbage they generate. Biodegradable waste goes into the fjord, but the rest has to be shipped to the mainland. Environmental scientists like Kim Holman are critical of the increasing shipping traffic in the Arctic and the harm it causes to the sensitive ecosystem. We have had the people change their feelings from enjoying being here to having anxiety and fear. We have had the forced relocation. About a third of the houses had to be abandoned in Longyearbyen. And many other more banal things like recreation has to change because places that were safe before are not safe anymore. Before it became a tourist paradise, Svalbard was best known for its coal. Most settlements, like Longyearbyen, were founded by miners. In 1906, mining began industrially, but today not much is left of the sector. Many mine shafts are closed because they are too unprofitable. The world market price for coal is simply too low. Mine worker Bent Jacobson said this. Even though I promised my parents never to start in the mine because I lost a brother in 1991, I kept that promise for some years, 16 years, and I started in the mine. So it's a long, long tradition. It's fading away. Torbjörn Grotte is project manager for Longyearbyen's energy transition. The government uh, ordered an energy plan to show how will we make the transition, what would be the shift between the coal to the renewable. That's a long gap and that needs a whole lot of money and a whole lot of planning. The only things that have remained from mining are the customs from the old coal dust days. In public buildings, hotels, museums and the church, you have to take off your shoes at the entrance and are given felt slippers in return, which are available everywhere. On top of that, there are the challenges of everyday life. Every light bulb must be flown in or brought in by ship from the Norwegian mainland. Every piece of construction equipment, every type of medicine, every apple, every piece of steel and every tube of toothpaste as well. But despite the difficulties of living here and the coal mining history that made the archipelago what it is today, Longyearbyen and the region have now become a centre of international climate research. Anyone who wants to do scientific work on the Arctic today has to come here, says Kim Holman. He says that marine biologists, meteorologists, geologists, geophysicists and ice scientists all use Svalbard for their research. In 1993, the world's northernmost university was founded here. Over 700 students are currently enrolled. I'm an optimist. We can change it if we work together. Everyone can contribute, but we also have to do things together that the single individual is unable to do. So system changes, energy systems, but we can do it and we must do it. Many animal species are facing new dangers. In the fatty tissue of polar bears, for example, researchers have detected environmental toxins. And the amount of so-called forever chemicals used for waterproof textiles is rising rapidly. More and more microplastics are found in the stomachs of birds. Whatever happens on Svalbard, no one will be able to say that they didn't know about it, Holman says. In his lectures, he likes to refer to one of his earliest scientific papers on how humans are driving the decline of polar ice. It's over 40 years old. Is there a right way to communicate about climate change? No, there are 7 billion people, they all have different points of view, and to communicate with all of them 
in one way is not possible. We must have diversity in our communication, but we have one thing in common, and that is life and the planet. So we have to communicate in diverse ways to reach as many as possible. And we must find different ways of entering into human lives. Ben Ressler presenting that report from Michael Mapek. You're listening to Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shields. Next up, not far from Norway, Russia is also home to considerable Arctic territory. But protecting this part of it, and the rest of Russia's gigantic landmass, is becoming increasingly difficult. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in early 2022, Putin's crackdown on dissidents has spread from anti-war and pro-Ukraine movements to environmental protection agencies and climate activists. At least five conservation NGOs are now banned from operating in the country, including Greenpeace and the World Wildlife Fund. The Russian government has accused these organisations of interfering with its internal affairs and undermining the country's economic development. So where to from here? Sergei Setanovsky brings us this story about Russian environmental activists and organisations fighting for the country's sustainable future despite being forced to work from abroad. This is Ashak Makichan. He's in Berlin, performing an Armenian folk melody at a rally for the recognition of the Armenian genocide. For the professional musician and Fridays for Future coordinator from Russia, Armenia is now his only hope, the country he expects to obtain citizenship from. Early in 2023, Ashak became stateless. Russia stripped him, his two brothers and his father of their only citizenship. It's uh, an old Soviet tool to repress the families of activists. I was kind of prepared, but yeah, of course it's horrible, yeah, that because of your activism, uh, lives of your parents, your family is kind of ruined. Since 2019, Arshak had been protesting against climate pollution in Russia, and since 2022, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He would stand out on the street with a poster, alone. Until a few years ago, solitary picketing was the only form of legal public protest for which Russians didn't need to ask permission. But now, even this is banned too. Journalists have called Arshak Makichan the loneliest eco-activist in the world. For a long time, he was the only participant in Fridays for Future strikes in Russia. Russia, strike for climate! Strike for climate! Before the war, he, like other activists, was occasionally detained at protests. But it was only after Russia attacked Ukraine that the Russian authorities questioned his right to live in the country, claiming that 20 years ago his parents gave false information to the state in order to obtain citizenship. My name is Arshak and this is my story. My parents migrated to Russia because of the blockade of Armenia. And then, 28 years later, they were deported and deprived of their citizenship because of my activism. The young man keeps going to protests. 
not in the central squares of Moscow as before, but in Berlin, at the Russian embassy. He says it was after the demands of movements like Fridays for Future that Europe imposed an embargo on Russian oil. Now, the West must convince other governments to give up Russian fossil fuels, the activist believes. I think this fossil fuel money was like source of Putin's power because he had a lot of money to buy Russian people, to buy a lot of arms uh, to prepare for this war. So cutting this source of his power was a quite effective strategy. And I think we need to continue to push other governments in the world. We need to demand from India, from China to stop buying fossil fuels from Russia. Since the beginning of the full-scale war against Ukraine, Russia has been moving towards de-greening its legislation. In a report issued in May, the Russian Socio-Ecological Union identified several worrying trends. Citizens no longer have a say in local habitat conservation, environmental safety requirements have been rolled back, and once protected natural areas have now been opened up to development. Experts also fear that Russia's new oil transportation routes redirecting experts from Europe to Asia could cause ecological catastrophes in the eastern Arctic. Environmental NGOs are trying to prevent these rollbacks, but Russia has now declared such environmental work illegal. In the past few months, five conservation organizations have been deemed undesirable by the Russian prosecutor's office. Greenpeace, WWF, Norway's Bellona, the Altai Project and the Wild Salmon Center are now banned from operating in the country. Now, cooperation with these organizations, which includes donating to them or even reposting their posts on social media, could lead to up to six years in prison. Ksenia Vakhrushova is a project manager at Bellona, an environmental NGO headquartered in Oslo. Before the war, it had one of its strongest branches in Russia's St. Petersburg and Murmansk. At that time, Bellona's Russian branch was powerful enough to serve on the public council of the state nuclear energy corporation, Rosatom. Well, environmental organizations were a target of Russian authorities uh, from long time ago, mostly because uh, a lot of environmental problems are connected with corruption and violation uh, of rules by business which is connected to authorities. That's why they see environmental organizations as a threat to the status quo, to their authority. And that's why they consider environmental activities as political activities. After being forced to leave Russia, Belona had to change their lines of work. But its employees still hope to influence Russia's decisions on climate policies from outside the country. So we don't have these direct actions to protect the environment immediately or to solve concrete problems on the ground. But we believe that our analytical work will help policymakers outside Russia to formulate right policies towards Russia and be aware of what's happening there and what might happen there so that they have ready solutions and good analytics to base this solution on. Arshak Makichan is also trying to adapt his activist work to emigrant conditions. He dreams of inspiring Russians back in the country to create a politicized grassroots movement through his activism on social networks. But so far, he says, it hasn't been easy. Russian opposition politicians in exile do not take him seriously and activists living in Russia are afraid of the repercussions their political action would likely bring. I cannot just stop doing activism. Yeah, I don't have this choice. I need to continue because 
activism, my, my social work is my life. I gave up my violin career. I gave up everything to do that. And I don't have this choice. Now that Russian environmental activists and organizations have no other option than to work from abroad, there are options to help shape Russia's climate policies and deter dangerous trends have narrowed. They can only raise awareness, whether among Russian internet users or European politicians. But they are still doing their best to prevent ecological disasters that of course wouldn't stop at the Russian border. For DW, I am Sergei Satanovsky in Bonn, Germany. And that brings us to an end of this week's episode of Living Planet. Thank you so much for listening. Living Planet is a DW Studios production. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to Living Planet in whichever podcast app you use. And if you've got a minute and you like the show, make sure to leave us a rating and a review. You can also always reach out to us at livingplanet at dw.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Charlie Shields. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the world. Are you worried about the state of our planet? Me too. I'm Neil, host of the On the Green Fence podcast, and to me it's clear we need to change. The solutions are out there, but where do we start? Join me for a deep dive into the green transformation and what it means for me, for you, for the planet. On the Green Fence, wherever you get your podcasts.